0: This is a continuation of a fantastic insight into God's Word, that the names that were given to the Lord Jesus Christ at the Incarnation are not only a revelation of His nature, His identity, and His purpose, but those who covenant with Him in this new covenant era receive an overflow of that nature, that identity, and that purpose indicated in names and titles that are given to us. And so we're continuing this study that we began in the last episode. I hope you listen to it as a foundation of what I'm going to say in this presentation. And this is just going to awaken new insight, new revelation in your life about who we are and make you daring and bold to say, I am who God says I am, and then boldly walk in your God-given purpose. Now, last week, we ended by focusing on Micah chapter five, verse two. And I partially brought out that revelation because that verse identified the birthplace of the Messiah, not Jerusalem, the thriving metropolis that was the focus of the attention of the Israelite people. There was a bit of pride associated with Jerusalem. That was the important place to be. And yet a little, uh, shepherding community about 10 or 15 miles away was Bethlehem. A very humble community where a meek and a humble working class of people lived. And I think it's wonderful that Jesus chose to be born into that place, into that little city that was the least of all the cities in the land attributed to Judah. And that's just the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came with humility, who came with meekness, even though he was destined to be a ruler in Israel. And of course, the word Bethlehem means house of bread because apparently there was an industry of bread making that was going on in that city. And Jesus, the one who was laid in the trough, the feeding trough that we call a manger, He was the bread of life for starving humanity, a human race starving for the truth. And he transferred that calling to be bread to us because in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, the body of Christ is referred to as one bread because we are one with the one who said, I am the bread of life. That nature of being bread has been transferred to us. Now, one thing I did not cover in the last episode is how bread is made. First, of course, the grain has to be harvested. That speaks of salvation being harvested under God. Then it, in the winnowing process, the chaff has to be separated from the grain because the chaff can't be used for uh, the necessary flour to bake the bread. And that speaks of the hard outer shell of the carnal nature being removed from us so that God can get to the pure essence of who we are as sons and daughters of God. But then of course, the flour has to be cooked. It has to be baked at a high temperature. And that speaks of the fiery trials that you and I go through as we proceed forward into the future in our life with Christ, we know that there's going to be trials and tribulations and persecutions and disappointments, but all these fiery trials are just baking the bread so that we can be suitable to feed to the masses with the kind of nature that is similar to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in that verse of scripture, Micah 5, 2, it also says that Jesus was ordained to be a ruler in Israel. Well, that's not a title that rests only on him. In the parable of the talents found in Matthew chapter 25, those servants who multiplied the talents that were given to them by their master heard him say in praise of them, well done, you good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler of, over many things, and I believe that's universal in scope. That's a cosmic promise far beyond our ability to really fully absorb, because in the kingdom to come, yes, the born-again, blood-washed believers who are resurrected and glorified will be rulers over the nations, co-ruling with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But who knows what that involves in the new creation when he makes a new heaven and a new earth, And he, as the king of kings, shares his kingship with all of us because he has made us kings and priests. And we shall reign, we shall rule on the earth, and I believe in the universe and the new creation as a whole. What a fabulous idea. And surely that stretches the mind to even grasp the greatness of our future. Now let's go to a statement that was made by Gabriel to Joseph, Joseph who was concerned, Joseph who was worried. He's just found out that Mary is pregnant. What should he do? And the angel Gabriel appeared and told him to take Mary as his wife, that what was in her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then he went on to tell Joseph, she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus Or, of course, it would have been in Hebrew. Uh, I'm sure Gabriel would not have talked to Joseph in English. But he said, you shall call his name Yeshua, or what we say, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I believe it's important to know that the name Yeshua was a Hebrew name that meant salvation, In fact, it's a Hebrew word that was used and translated salvation all through the Old Testament. For instance, when Moses stood at the Red Sea, he told the children of Israel who thought they were gonna see a bloodbath when Pharaoh and his army got to them. Instead, they heard Moses exhort, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Well, in Hebrew, it's the word Yeshua. So in other words, he was saying in a new covenant sense, stand still and watch Jesus or Yeshua do his thing. And he opened the Red Sea before them. So salvation was a name that rested on the firstborn son of God because that was his calling. That was his purpose to bring salvation to the world. And the word salvation simply means deliverance. Deliverance not just from sin, but deliverance from every negative thing we face in life. He came to be deliverance from the lower nature, deliverance from satanic manipulation, control of our lives, deliverance from the pain of our past and the errors of our past, deliverance from the fears of the future, deliverance from the grave, deliverance from the grips of death, deliverance from all the arch enemies of the human race. Well, how was that transferred to us? Well, in Hebrews chapter one, verse 14, it says that ministering spirits or angels have been ordained to minister to the heirs of salvation, or in other words, the heirs of Yeshua. When Yeshua comes into our lives, salvation becomes our inheritance. And we inherit salvation in every area of our existence. Isn't that wonderful to know that salvation covers your past and covers your future? If Yeshua, salvation is in your life, it's a rainbow of promise over your life from the beginning to the end. Thank God for that. And as heirs of salvation, we bear the message of salvation, the gospel of salvation to a lost world. It's an important task that is ahead of us. Now, what about the statement that the angels made to the shepherds in the fields? Let's go to Luke chapter two, verses 10 through 12. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, not just Jews, but all the Gentile world as well. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Three titles, Savior, Christ, Lord. And this will be assigned to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So how are those titles in a sense, in a subordinate sense, transferred to us? Well, not only is Jesus entitled the Savior. Now he's the Savior of the entire world. And he purchased our salvation through his death on Calvary which cannot uh, in any way be equaled by any human being. That was the supreme sacrifice that forever we will praise him for. But we have inherited a subordinate calling, and I shudder to apply this to us because I don't want it to be misinterpreted, but we have inherited a subordinate calling of individually being saviors also. Where do I find that? Obadiah chapter 1 verse 21 talks about the future kingdom to come, and it says that saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. It's talking about the Messianic kingdom to come. When all of the redeemed will come up on the slopes of Mount Zion, we will worship the Lord there in Jerusalem, the holy city of God. And God refers to us as saviors. So in continuing the work that Jesus started when he died on the cross and when he rose from the dead, we should have a savior mentality. What does that mean? Well, a savior is someone willing to sacrifice himself entirely in order to lay down his life for the good of the world. And I believe we're all called to that kind of mindset to be willing to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, that we might continue the work that Jesus started of bringing deliverance to the captives in this world. And again, salvation means deliverance. A savior is one who brings deliverance to others. And certainly that's what we're called to do. Now, when the angel spoke to the shepherds also, he said that this one in the manger would be Christ the Lord. Now, the word Christ means anointed one. Now, how has that been transferred to us? Well, all born-again believers are true Christians. Now, there is a professing Christianity made up of millions of people who profess a faith in historical Christ, but then there is a smaller nucleus of people who are the true body of Christ, who are true Christians, who have been born-again and blood-washed and we have become God's anointed ones of this era. He was the Christ, the anointed one. We are Christians. We are anointed ones. We have received the specific application of the Holy Spirit to our lives, an anointing in order to accomplish a God-ordained purpose, and that is advancing the kingdom of God in this world. Now, he's also referred to as Lord, which is a word that means master. And actually, the word Lord... In the English Bibles that we have, was a translation of the holy name of God, Yahweh, Y H V H, transliterated into the English alphabet, but it's Yad in Hebrew. And so he's the Lord of Lords. If Yahweh is our Lord, then he has translated lordship to us. And the Bible, talking about God's people, says that a child, if he's an heir, is still subject to all kinds of problems, even though he may be Lord of all. And so God wants lordship or mastery. That may be a better word for it. Mastery to be transferred to every son of God. And you'll live like a child controlled by binding elements in your life until you realize that I have lordship. I have mastery over all the negatives i face in life i can even master my own defeats in life i can rise above everything every satanic attack every disappointment every challenge to my calling i can rise above it all and you can too so those three names have been transferred to us savior christ and lord not assuming those exact names but names that are drawn in a subordinate sense from those names that rested upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's go to one that I find quite interesting. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. The Bible says in that verse that he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. And so that was a title that rested on him when he was yet in his infant stage. He was a Nazarene and it was used of Jesus in the Bible 17 times. It was a popular way of referring to him. He was often called Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. Why was that so important? Even an evil spirit in Mark chapter one, verse 24 said, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Do you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then when Philip found Nathanael and said, we found him who Moses spoke of in the law and also the prophets, talking about the Messiah. And he said, he's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael's response was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth was a low-life kind of city where the scorned lower level of society lived. It was probably a place where a lot of crime went on, a lot of debauchery and uncleanness and drunkenness and immorality. And that's why Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, it's amazing to me and really indicative of the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ that after he went from Bethlehem with the Holy Family, after Joseph and Mary went from Bethlehem, they went back to Nazareth and he grew up in wicked surroundings in low life surroundings where blasphemy was common where taking the name of the lord was often heard because those were the kind of people that did that but those were the kind of people he came to save he was in nazareth across the tracks we would say now in the you know the community that is Not up to par with the higher levels of society. Well, he came to reach the lowest levels of society. Thank God for that. But he passed that calling to us. Now, there's something else about the word Nazareth and Nazarene that I need to convey because, see, the word Nazareth means a guarded one. Why? Because Nazareth was surrounded by mountains that provided a natural barrier against invaders. Their troops, their soldiers could go up to the top of the mountains around the city and attack the invaders while they came up the slopes and you never attack an enemy on higher ground. They have a a natural uh, ability to more easily defeat an enemy that is coming up the slopes of a mountain. And, and so Nazareth meant a guarded city, a guarded one. And so Jesus was, as Jesus of Nazareth, a guarded one. They tried to kill him at his birth, but he was guarded. And the angels uh, escorted him, I'm sure, to Egypt when Joseph and Mary took him down there. Living in a heathen country, he was guarded. And when he came back, of course, when he announced his ministry in Nazareth, They tried to throw him off the brow of the hill, but he just walked through the midst of them. He didn't jerk himself free and try to flee and run. He just walked through their midst. There was a barrier around him. They couldn't touch him until the appointed time. How has that been transferred to us? Well, go with me to Acts chapter 24, verse five. See, when Jesus was on the cross, even that name Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, was on the cross. So he was even guarded when he was swallowed up by death. And so it is with you and I. Well, it was a a demeaning term. It was a term to ridicule him. His opposers said Jesus of Nazareth as, as if that disqualified him. But those who loved him said Jesus of Nazareth to indicate the glory of the love that came from him for the lowest of the low. And so it was kind of a dual thing. It was a demeaning term, but a term of exaltation and praise. In like manner for us, when Tertullus, who was an orator representing the high priest, spoke before Felix, the governor, to try and condemn Paul, he said this. He said, we found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of that sect called the Nazarenes, hmm. the sect of the Nazarenes, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Well, again, that's a demeaning term, a bunch of low-life people that believe Jesus was actually the Messiah when any thinking person knows that's not the case. That's kind of the implication of the statement. But what was meant as a demeaning statement by the opposition is really a statement exalting the born-again believers of the new covenant as guarded ones also. We are guarded ones. Nothing's going to take us out of the world until the appointed time. And until that appointed time, we are under the guardianship of angels. There's a natural barrier around us of the presence of God. God goes before us. His glory is behind us. His hand is upon us. There's a hedge all around us. We are guarded people, and we can be confident of that. Next, let's go to Luke chapter one, verse 32. This is Zechariah prophesying right after his tongue was loosed when he admitted that his son would not be named Zechariah, but John. And later on, he became John the Baptist. And Zechariah was then filled with an anointing that caused him to prophesy. And he prophesied not only of John, but he prophesied of the Messiah. And he said concerning John that he will, uh, concerning the Messiah rather, that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So Jesus in the incarnation was called the Son of the Highest. The Son of the Highest. Why would you refer to God as the highest? Because he has the highest, most perfected, most uh, complete and whole character that could ever be imagined. He's perfect love, perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect grace, perfect forgiveness, perfect mercy. He's the highest, the highest expression of what character and nature could ever be. Have we inherited that title? If the firstborn son is called the son of the highest, are we given a similar title? Absolutely. In Luke chapter six, verse 35, listen to what, Jesus exhorted us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing again in return, and your reward shall be great, and you shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Not only is he going to pour rain out on the good and the evil, not only is he going to cause the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, he's going to pass that kind of nature to us so that we bless those who curse us and love those who do evil things against us. Does that sound unachievable? No, it's not unachievable. That nature can be transferred to you so that he not only bears that title, the son of the highest, but we become children of the highest. Now let's go to Luke chapter one, verses 68 and 69. Again, this is a continuation of Zechariah's prophecy about the Messiah. And he said, blessed is the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. Or rather, rather, this is a, uh, a proclamation. This is a proclamation of, of who Jesus is. He has visited and redeemed his people and raised up for us a horn of salvation in the house of his servant, David. So Jesus is referred to as a horn of salvation. Why is he called a horn of salvation? And I'm checking that out in the original. Praise God, what is a horn? And of course it could be a reference to a shofar. Praise God being blown. And uh, and this incidentally was a proclamation over him that he would fulfill a certain purpose that a horn or a shofar was used for. A horn or a shofar was used for several reasons. It was to gather the people of God to the tabernacle. They would blow a certain sound on the shofars to accomplish that. They would also blow the shofar In another way, to gather the men of Israel for war, or they would blow the shofar in order to pull up stakes and begin traveling again. So there were three major uses of the horns or the shofars, or sometimes the uh, silver trumpets were blown also to effect these things in Israel. Well, if he was a horn of salvation, then he became the one used of the Father to gather us to worship, to gather the people of God for true worship, also to gather us together for war, because a war has been launched against the prince of darkness, and to gather us together to travel from time into eternity, because we are not only strangers in this world, we are pilgrims on a journey to the next world. Isn't that awesome? And we are all called to be royalty, we are called for something far more than what Adam passed to us because Adam was the first man, Jesus was the second man, and and he was the Lord from heaven who gave us a royal nature in the process. Praise God. Now let's go to Luke chapter one, verses 76 through 78. This is Zechariah again. He's speaking to John the Baptist and he says, you child will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. Now, what is the day spring? It's the first filtering rays of light that come across the horizon. Before you can see the sun, It evidences its soon appearance by sending out rays of light. That's the spring of the day, or that's the day spring, the start of the time when darkness will flee and light will illuminate the world. Well, Jesus was the day spring from on high. Well, how has that been transferred to us? Well, when he approaches high noon, so to speak, he becomes the son of righteousness, who arises with healing in his wings. But he's not the only one who occupies that role of being a light in this dark world. Because even as he was the day spring, bringing the dawning of a new day globally, you fill that role when you come into someone else's life because you're the light of the world. He said that in Matthew five fourteen. You are the light of the world, the light of the world, literally, physically, materially speaking, is the sun. Well, spiritually speaking, it's the S-O-N-S, the sons and daughters of God. You light up a dark world and you inherited this calling from him who is the son of righteousness who brings healing to us. You may say, I'm not convinced yet. Well, what about Matthew 25 in the parable of the sheep and the goats? He said concerning the sheep, that will inherit eternal life, that they will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Now our brightness and radiant, glorified, eternal forms then will be far greater than the light of God that shines from us now. But we are in the process of the full unveiling and evolution of this calling in us that will culminate in the resurrection of the dead. So these are the main names that had been transferred to the people of God. No wonder Zechariah, once again, said that this coming Messiah would be the consolation of Israel. He looked for the consolation of Israel. Consolation means a consoling, to comfort you, to console you. And when you realize these things, it's a great comfort to all of us. And you bring that consolation and that comfort to other people. And... Praise God, the one who was the glory of his people, Israel, has become the glory of our lives as well. Well, I hope the names given to the Lord Jesus Christ at his incarnation and the transference of those titles and names to us, I hope the revelation has been a real blessing to you because it changed the world forever when Jesus came. And you can become the means of changing the world forever for someone else when you bear the message of Jesus to them. Have a wonderful new year. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.